I'll invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Last week, if you remember, we covered verses 1 to 4 mainly. And uh, we saw how those verses reveal to us the depth of corruption that had occurred upon the earth at this time. And that's what this is communicating regardless of how we might understand some of the specific details of what exactly is going on in verses 1 to 4. And then in verses 5 to 8, which we started to touch on last week but left for today, uh, God then gives us now in these verses his perspective on what has become of his creation. And he gives us his response and what he plans to do, which we will read of in coming weeks and cover in coming weeks in verses 9 and following. So we're going to read again verses 1 to 8, and then we're going to focus on verses 5 to 8 in our time. So let's read Genesis chapter 6 again, beginning in verse 1 through to 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. When we read about the evil things that human beings have done in days gone by, uh, whether we're thinking of World War II and the Nazis and what they did or various communists have done, or we think of other evils like perhaps the transatlantic slave trade or Or if we were to go back further to Bible times and we think of the evils of the Egyptians, the Canaanites and the horrific practices that they had. We think about the wickedness of the Assyrians and their brutal practices as well. Or even the Israelites themselves and their sins. Or we think of Sodom and Gomorrah. Or we think of the world as it was in Genesis chapter 6. When we read about and think about such evils and such times in history, there's a tendency to want to distance ourselves from it. We, and I, I mean we broadly speaking here, we would assume, sometimes rather simplistically, that, well, if I was there at that time, I would have been the exception to the evil and the wickedness. I would have seen this very clearly. And we fail to grasp the deceitfulness of the human heart. And certainly, this is something that we see. It's very prominent in our society today. We judge the past with such self-righteous and simplistic judgments, assuming that things were just super black and white back then, and if we were there, we would have definitely seen this clearly. We don't have time for complicated discussions of wickedness and evil and so on. 
We just assume we would have done what was right if we were there, and we pass a very easy judgment on those who've gone before us. All the while, meantime, advocating for utter wickedness and depravity in our own day. People don't want to face the truth, don't want to hear about the truth of what resides in the human heart, in human nature, in fallen man. People don't want to recognize, moreover, that this is a common human nature. And that this nature is not pretty to behold when exposed to the light. It is simply easier for us to think that we now and those around us now are a different and superior sort to those who've gone before us and have committed atrocities or those who are out there even today somewhere else committing great evils. And yet the scripture, Bible's, the Bible's consistent witness about these things from Genesis through to the end in Revelation, the Bible's consistent testimony, which is perfectly in keeping with observable reality throughout the ages, is that the heart of man is indeed desperately sick. The mere passage of time does not fix or alter this. That is not sufficient. That we live in a time of great technological advance does not fix or change human nature. How urgently man needs to understand this and then to receive the grace of God. How desperately man needs God's grace to remedy this situation because nothing else does. And in verses 5 to 8 of chapter 6, we see all of these things and more. We see here again God's perspective on man and his response to Noah and to those in Noah's day. And so as we work through these verses, our outline consists of four things. We're going to look at the divine verdict in verse 5. And secondly, divine grief expressed in verse 6. Divine judgment in verse 7. And then fourthly, divine mercy. So hang on for that. But first, the divine verdict in verse 5. We did look at this verse a little bit last week, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. But let's read it again. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This verse here stands in stark contrast, absolute contrast, to what God saw at the end of chapter 1. When God finished creation, in verse 31 of chapter 1, it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So upon creating everything, God surveys the scene, if you will, and declares everything is very good. And now we fast forward to chapter 6. God again surveys the scene, only this time it's a very different reality. The Lord saw great wickedness on the earth. This is no hasty or sudden judgment that God is making here. God Almighty knows the hearts of men and declares the truth about men here. He has been patient up until now. We are fast forwarding now from Genesis 1 to 6, but we have walked through this a little more slowly and seen this development. This is God's verdict as he sees man here. Again, as we noted last time, God informs us here that the evil is lodged in the heart of man. It's not just that man occasionally does the odd external bad thing. 
Rather, the inner man, the heart, he says, is only evil continually. Which is to say there is no let up to this. Now it may not always be expressed in its absolute fullness, but that evil is always present continually. That's what he's saying. This would also include man's efforts to try to be righteous, which amount to nothing more in the end than filthy rags. That's what Isaiah tells us. Righteousness is as filthy rags. Sinful man, certainly, we acknowledge, does the right thing sometimes. He's not always as evil as he could possibly be. But he is still, at the end of the day, utterly devoid of true righteousness in the sight of God. And in the end, it is still, as it says here, only evil. Even those good deeds are not done in faith and done with various motives. And are not done to the glory of God. And I mentioned last week when we covered this verse briefly that we'd like to think and conclude that this is not a universal condemnation of man. We'd like to think this is just reserved for the men of chapter 6 of Genesis. And there's no doubt that things had become especially bad in Noah's day. But at the same time, as we talked about last week, even after the flood, the problem still remains. And so in chapter 8, verse 21, the reason God tells us he will not again send a flood to destroy the earth is that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So consider that. The flood is over. It's just Noah and his family. And God still says this about man and man's heart. The flood has not changed anything at that point. It has not solved the problem. If God were to continue to flood man because of an evil heart and flood the earth, he'd have to do this generation after generation. Furthermore, many years after the flood... The New Testament is proclaiming to us the exact same message. It does not ease up. It does not let up. You think of Romans chapter 3 where Paul is writing to the church in Rome and he compiles as he's making his case that everybody is sinful and fallen short of the glory of God, Jew, Gentile alike. In chapter 3 he compiles a bunch of Old Testament texts showing they remain true even now as Paul writes and he says those painful words, none is righteous, no not one No one does good, not even one, Romans 3. And it continues to just lay that out there. The divine verdict has been rendered, it is made, and it is devastating in what it says. And as much as we don't want to hear it, we can't look away from this too quickly. This is reason for introspection. If we understand sin to be a lack of conformity to God's law in the heart in our will and in our actions, then it is easy to see the truth of this, that God's word is telling us the truth, that lying, stealing, malicious thoughts, slander, lustful thoughts, various types of wickedness, gossip, hatred, various perversions, disobedience to and dishonoring of parents even. This is sinful in the eyes of God. It reveals our hearts are far from Him. And even those of us who agree that what God's Word says is true here, and we are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have renewed desires 
We understand that what God says is true, that we deserve his wrath. We understand, though, that God's law is good. We even desire that, to be conformed to that. But surely we still see the truth of this, do we not? The flesh remains strong. Even if you've been a believer for many years, you know this. The years go by and still our sins are present with us. Still our hearts are so easily deceived. We wake up, we have a time of prayer and reading our Bible, and sometimes it's a wonderful time. And we read and we are filled with the joy of reading scriptures and the truthfulness of it. And we just want this day. We pray and we say, I just want to do what is righteous and in, in gratitude to my God for the grace he has shown me. And all those stupid things that tempt me other days just seem so dumb in this moment. And we pray for strength and we're committed this day. We're going to walk and this is our desire to live in obedience to God. And we go about our day and temptation comes in and we fall again. Even when we do what is good, we can see that evil accompanies it, perhaps in our motives. We help that person who needs our help. That's the right thing to do, and that is good, and so we do it. But we kind of despise this person for intruding upon us. We resent that we have to be here to help. Or perhaps we do what is right. But then when someone commends us for it, there's that little part of us that goes... I'm glad they heard that. The desires and relishes in the praise of others. The heart, as Scripture tells us, is desperately sick and asks rhetorically, who can understand it? We feel that. You feel that. I prayed. I I was so... Sure of it this morning. And then deception, sin, and we're right back to who can understand the human heart? The verdict of God is in. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. Secondly, we have divine grief expressed in verse 6. It reads, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. One of the reasons that I wanted to split this up from last week was because as I was preparing and writing out notes to preach it. I realized that this verse is something I'd have to just, we'd have to move through pretty quickly. And it could be handled, I think, quickly, but it seems it could be helpful to maybe take a few minutes to think through what this is saying. This verse communicates something to us that is very important about the heart of God. But it also raises some questions for us when we consider the greatness of God. The verse tells us here that the Lord regretted that he made man. The word regretted means in this context to be sorry, to rue, to repent even of one's own doings. It is translated in verse 7, the same word there is translated as sorry. When the Lord says, I'm sorry that I have made them. So again, we've gone from God saying everything is very good to I regret having made them. Further, it says the Lord's creation of man grieved him to his heart. The heart, of course, refers to the inner core of one's being. We've just seen man is wicked in his heart and the Lord is grieved in his heart, it says here. 
So it's important for us to consider the weight of these statements as it reveals to us something of God's displeasure at what has occurred. But again, these statements also raise for us questions. If God is indeed infinite, if he is the all-knowing supreme being who knows the end from the beginning, who is himself eternal, if he is the great other who exists outside of all of creation and the universe that he has made, there is God and then there is everything else. If he is this great supreme being who does not change, then how can this tell us here that he regretted something he did? Regret is something we do when we didn't have the foresight to know that was a bad decision or we acted sinfully or something like that. We regret that. And if we could go back and change it, we would. And so we think, surely what's happening here in chapter six is not outside of God's sovereignty. Surely this is not a surprising revelation to God. Is he not, as James says, the father of lights? with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There is no shadow of turning with thee. We sing that all the time. So is the Bible being inconsistent here? Is it being contradictory? Is he immutable, except for the times when he's mutable? He's perfect and does what is right, except for those times when he's racked with regret. And of course, there are many who will read these kinds of verses. There's others similar and like these in Scripture. Who will emphasize these kinds of statements in such a way that their view of God is of a being who sits back and is just basically just wringing his hands over the situation upon the earth. And so I want to take a couple minutes here and work through this because, of course, I don't believe There is actual contradiction in Scripture. And I don't think anyone should be troubled as we read these words. And so I want to just begin a bit more broadly and then narrow in here on verse 6 and what this is saying. So God is indeed infinite. We, we, We sang of this. It even came up in our songs here this afternoon. God is infinite. That is, he is outside of this universe that he has created. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. That's what Solomon prayed when he dedicated his temple. Acknowledging the heavens, the universe itself, let alone this temple, is not really containing God Almighty. So if you were to try to create the biggest box imaginable, it cannot contain God Almighty. He is unbounded. You cannot create a boundary for him. The universe isn't a big enough box to contain God. He is infinite. Of course, when I speak this way, I'm not speaking as if God is not morally bound by anything. God is holy. He will not deny himself. He will not act unrighteously or anything like that. So there's a sense in which we say he's bound by his own holiness to act consistently. Because some people will talk of kind of use this that way. God is not in a box. And if you try and define him in any old way, you're, you're denying God Almighty. That's not what we're saying. But 
But God is outside of and greater than the universe itself. He's infinite. There's no end. You and I, by contrast, are finite. We are very limited. The older we get, I think the more apparent that is. A very small box would indeed contain us. Our brains can only handle so much information, as remarkable as the human brain is. Human language, likewise, is finite. It's part of creation. As remarkable as language is, we still often find that it fails to fully describe even things that we experience in this world. You try to describe the most beautiful sunset you've ever seen to somebody. Or the most beautiful mountain view and scene. You're back from vacation. You're trying to tell your friends about it. You want them to enter into your joy. But your words fall flat. And you know this is not really describing it adequately or well at all. It's difficult. So when God reveals himself to mankind through words... We understand then that he is necessarily accommodating himself to our weakness and finiteness. He is condescending to us that we might grasp something of who he is. Sort of like how we might condescend to a small child and get down on our knees and use small words and so on to try to communicate. Finite human language will not be capable of expressing all that God is in his essence. It cannot give us a complete and comprehensive understanding of God. This is necessarily the case because God is infinite and our language is not. Again, some people use this argument kind of like this to say, therefore, The Bible is really not that useful to us or it's not really very trustworthy or it's not giving us true information about God or whatever because God's so much greater. So this is, you know, maybe just one little effort to try to understand him, but it's one among many and and we can't, you know, declare things like it's infallibility and and so on. That's not what I'm saying. We confess and affirm that scripture is indeed God's word to us. It is his revelation of himself in scripture to us. He reveals himself certainly in creation. And he reveals us specially, himself specially to us in his word. It is his word. It gives us true knowledge of him. But we must understand that God, even in this, is condescending to us in giving us scripture. To use human language to speak of himself to us. This is a tremendous act of his mercy. And our very best understanding, biblical as it will be, our very best understanding of God is comparable to how a tiny child understands his or her parents. When a small child is getting to know their parents, they are learning things that are true about their parents, certainly. But it is so far from exhaustive and a complete understanding of who these people are. They know this is mom. And maybe they don't even know that yet. 
but they know that this person feeds me and takes care of me. They know that's dad. They know that with them I'm safe. They, they come when I cry. They come and they get me. They help me. They comfort me. They give me food. They understand some very basics about these things. And parents, we try to help by communicating in a way that's appropriate to little children. Again, we get low and we look at them and we use small words and they're barely even human words. And our voices jump several octaves when we speak to them. And it has to be this way, maybe not the octaves part, but we have to try to condescend to a child to try to help them understand. We can't just hand them our memoirs and say, there, son, you read that, and then you'll understand what I am and who I am and what I'm all about. They can't handle that. And this is sort of how it is with God speaking to us, except the gulf is even greater between God and man, far more enormous. We are different beings altogether. If we are to relate to God, he must accommodate our finiteness and our weakness. And indeed, this is what he does for us in his word, gracious of him. And in this accommodation to us, we find sometimes statements like what we read in verse 6, where human attributes and characteristics are assigned to God. And so we should understand these, these verses as speaking of God in a human way, in a manner of speaking. It communicates truth to us about God, but it is not to be taken literally where we think that God literally possesses a physical heart that beats and pumps blood through his physical body, even though verse 6 mentions his heart. When the Bible assigns human body parts and forms to God, we call that anthropomorphisms. I'm not so much concerned you know that word, but the concept. You might, we might as well learn the word and learn the language of the faith. I think that's helpful. <laughs> Human forms being ascribed to God. And we have this really all over the Bible. We, we don't even always realize we're reading it or seeing it. But we read of God's arm being strong to save. His eyes that see all. We read of his mouth, which speaks. We read of God's standing, of his walking. In fact, if you noticed, even in our call to worship, the very last line of Psalm 138, do not forsake the work of your hands. We know God does not possess literal hands, but we see this language everywhere. These are just some of the ways, this is one of the ways using this kind of human form to speak of God, that God accommodates us and communicates to us truth about himself that we wouldn't otherwise be able to grasp. It gives us, again, true understanding of him, but it is not to be taken literally. We do discover also in Scripture that God indeed possesses no physical form. That's among the reasons why Creating images of God is prohibited. Such an image will necessarily blaspheme the infinite one. 
to think that we can build something and somehow this correctly is going to image God Almighty. In addition to human forms like hands and arms being assigned to God, we also have human emotions that are ascribed to God. Sometimes those also go under the, the word anthropomorphisms. Well, there's another word for that. We could be more restrictive, anthropopathisms. That is from pathos for emotion. We see that here in verse 6 as well. This is what God's regret and grief are. We should not think that this is the same kind of grief and sorrow that we would experience as human beings. There is some correspondence, but it's by way of analogy to God's experience. This does communicate to us, though, God's great displeasure. He possessed a sorrow of sorts, a type that is unique to God Almighty. Again, this is an accommodating way of describing to us the displeasure of the infinite God. And with regard here to this mention of God's regretting, we are told explicitly elsewhere in the Bible that God does not change or experience regret. So 1 Samuel chapter 15 is interesting on this point in verse 29. It says, the glory of Israel, speaking of God, will not lie or have regret. It's the same word used here in Genesis 6. For he is not a man that he should have regret. So that's very explicit. God is different. He's not like man. He doesn't have regret. Then we keep reading six verses later, verse 35. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. I refuse to think that that is just a blatant contradiction so close together. Just besides the Holy Spirit inspiring the author, just to anybody that's going to write this together, like they, that they wouldn't see that. It makes more sense to understand that, to be communicating that God's regret is not to be understood in the same way that man possesses it. So when we read in Scripture of God regretting something, or some versions use the language of repenting of something, repenting of an action, when we read of his changing course, we say that this is not the same kind of regret that we experience. It is an accommodating language to us in our weakness with the limits of our ability to understand God and how he operates. And so when God changes a course of action due to his regret, then we should understand this as, for example, William Perkins, who's often referred to as the father of the Puritans, as he says, it notes only the alteration of things and actions done by God and no change of his purpose and secret decree, which is immutable. That is to say, God is not changing his sovereign will on the fly here as we get to the flood. He's not suddenly surprised by what he finds, and he's just reacting spontaneously to his creatures. It is not the changing of his sovereign will on the fly, but there is a changing of his work in history that is forthcoming here. God has been patient from the time of Adam's fall until now, bearing with 
the sins of man. He has not sent judgment to just wipe them all out. But his patience is past and judgment is now coming. So what I would say then is that the presence of this kind of language being attributed to God, which again, God is giving to us about himself in his holy word, is revealing to us again the horrific state of things on the earth and how this is so far, the brutality and the wickedness that is upon the earth is so far from the righteousness of God. It is the polar opposite of it. Such that it is appropriate to use this kind of language to describe God's response. It highlights again the the guilt of mankind. And this also tells us that the coming judgment that God is going to bring in the following chapters that we will see is not born out of some ghoulish pleasure that God possesses or some sort of sick delight Or capriciousness. God's not getting his kicks out of judging mankind. That's what this communicates to us by telling us of a grief. So we have this divine grief expressed. Again, I think this tells us God's general disposition towards mankind is one of patience, of grace. Thirdly, we have divine judgment. Verse 7, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Again, the divine regret expressed at the end. There's There's really no easy way to hear that. This is the reason given for blotting out man. God's going to exterminate man here and the animals and the creeping things and the birds of the heavens. Again, this is shocking language, hard to hear. This is a signal of what is to come here in the following chapters, namely the flood. And the way that it is worded here where it says, O blot out man whom I have created, reveals to us that what is coming is a great reversal of creation. God created man, but now he's going to blot him out on account of his great wickedness. God created the living creatures, but now he's going to blot them out too. This is an early signal to us in the Bible that God, while being patient, while we should not think of him as some some delight he takes in judging man, while he is patient, Nevertheless, God does not bear with man's sin and folly forever. Judgment is in the plan. We have seen consequences for sin already, certainly. The curse has been uttered forth and brought to pass. Death we've seen reigning. And now we see that another greater reckoning is on the way. And of course, we also know that the flood is... The coming flood is a foreshadow of the ultimate and final reckoning. The day of the Lord, as the Bible calls it. The final judgment. And the judgment of that day will be far more 
severe and awful even than the flood of Noah's day. The penalty is an infinite penalty. It is eternal damnation. The New Testament does not pull punches when it describes this judgment that is coming. Sometimes people might think of the Old Testament being filled with judgment and the New Testament is just about love. We do find much about judgment in the New Testament as well. And again, as painful as it is, we cannot look away too quickly from it. The book of Revelation speaks of Christ's return of him and of him treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. It speaks of the blood flowing as high as a horse's bridle. So Revelation 14 and 19. Again, hard words to hear. Offensive to hear. But it's offensive because we do not understand the holiness of God. We do not understand the heinousness of sin. Perhaps you noticed some of the sins that were listed when we read from 2 Timothy chapter 3 earlier. Being brutal. Things like disobedience to parents. But even as parents, we can laugh it off. It's just kind of a cute thing. It's just a child's thing. But it is not in the eyes of God. Kids, you need to understand that too. Dishonoring, disobeying parents. Serious in the eyes of God. Brutality on the earth. All manner of sin and wickedness that we can find. Man will be brought into judgment for these things. It seems that man gets away with it. How long, O Lord, psalmists cry out, looking for justice. Jesus told us to continue to pray, and he gave an example of a woman looking for justice, crying out to God. Eventually, justice will come upon the earth. Each man will stand before the judgment seat of God and give an account. And we're told in Hebrews 4, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Again, reference to eyes there, this accommodation of our language. He sees all, he knows all, it's what it's communicating to us. And while there's obviously a sense in which we say God does not delight in the death of the wicked, he will nevertheless execute justice according to his holiness. He has shown this to us. It's a sobering thought for any who would deal honestly before the Lord. If we would deal truthfully with God in our own hearts, we know that we deserve his judgment. We know that we fall short of his glory. We know the kinds of things that go on in our minds and in our hearts and when no one's looking. And so, as the psalmist asks, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And the Bible's quite clear. He does mark iniquity. He knows all. It's laid bare. But let's move on to verse 8. 
where we see divine mercy. God has determined to blot out man, as we have read, verse 8. But, and that, that can be a very good word, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. To find favor in the eyes of another is a common expression we find in the Bible when a person of higher rank or status or authority deals favorably and graciously with an inferior. The Hebrew word for favor can also be translated grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Indeed, grace is an unmerited favor. And this is what Noah finds with God. God will not, in fact, here bring about a full end of mankind, nor of creation itself. God will deal graciously and favorably with Noah, for it pleased God to do so. And if we think of the larger scope of Genesis, this means that the promised line will indeed continue, and the Christ will come, and he will come specifically from Noah's line. In the flow of the passage, we see the gospel story in miniature. We have human sinfulness. We have God's verdict about that sinfulness. God's displeasure and his judgment pronounced. And then we have the only hope, finding grace from God. When we talk about God's judgment and God's wrath for sin and God's law that leaves us condemned. As we've been saying, it's uncomfortable to hear and often we want to not think of ourselves or people we know, people around us in that light. We don't really want to hear it or we just feel the condemning weight of it all. But we don't need to fear it if we understand what's coming. If we understand the grace of God, if we preach the grace of God also in its fullness. The grace of God is indeed the only hope that any human being has. To receive divine favor from Almighty God. Again, human nature has not improved over the course of time. It is still as it was in Genesis chapter 6. Man is still sinful. We still fall short of God's righteousness. And God remains holy and just. He's the same forever. And he will indeed judge sinners. And so man's need is for grace. Grace that will pardon us. And grace that will change a man's heart. That will change that wicked nature. And empower us to delight in the things of God and and walk with God. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. Indeed, there is forgiveness. There is grace. The bad news is we are horrifically sinful in our hearts and in our thoughts. But there is forgiveness with God. There is grace. And it is promised for all who look away from themselves and look to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith who would repent of their sins, acknowledge God's verdict is true of us, and I have nowhere to hide. God's light exposes every dark corner, and I can't clean it up. I've tried, and I cannot, and I never will. 
But God is gracious to those who look away from their own efforts and to the Lord Jesus Christ. God does change human hearts. He does pull pitiable sinners from the wreckage of this sinful world and the wreckage of our own sinful hearts that we can't begin to comprehend. He does change a sinner's disposition that sinners might believe gladly and then indeed walk before God in the fear of the Lord. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The sinful flesh remains in the one who believes in Christ, it is true. But the internal holy war commences as the spirit within God's people does his sanctifying work. You know, one of the reasons that you're so troubled by your own sin, if you're a believer in Christ and you're all these years later and you're thinking, man, I'm still so troubled and disturbed by my sin. That's a good sign. Because the world doesn't care. And does not wrestle with the heart attitude before God. Would not be concerned that, oh, I did the right thing today, but my attitude was not right. And we understand, we want that too, to be honoring to the Lord. The Holy Spirit brings us about in God's people. As God spared Noah and his family, he was keeping his promise to send his son to the earth to indeed save sinners. And one day the offspring who had come from Noah's line, the son of God, the divine son of God made flesh, taking flesh to himself, came to die for sinners as we've sung, to have God's just and righteous wrath poured out upon himself, to drink that cup down to the end, to truly satisfy God's demand for justice for all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can, we can feel the weight of God's law, confess that sin honestly, because there is grace, there is forgiveness, because God's Righteous wrath has been satisfied. We don't have to pretend and play games. No, no, I'm really not that bad. We don't do that. As John says, we, we bring it in the light. We walk in the light. It's worse than I know and see. But with God, there is forgiveness. There is grace. There is full satisfaction for those sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so cast yourselves upon God's grace. Believe what God declares about the sinful heart and your sinful heart is true. Don't hide it. Don't run from it. Don't pretend it's otherwise. And believe that Christ Jesus alone can save you. And that he does indeed save to the uttermost. That he has accomplished all that is necessary for you to be forgiven. 
And that this salvation is graciously dispensed by God to those who believe. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your word is devastating in its evaluation of the human condition. Father, we confess we, we know but a small grasp of it. We know but a small grasp of, the, of our own evils in our own heart. Father, we thank you that even though this is true, It's true of those around us. It's true of us that we are sinful beings. That you are gracious to those in Christ Jesus. That you do forgive and you do pardon. As we sang, an infinite pardon. Our souls being threatened with infinite loss. As those who have sinned against the infinite God. Father, we we can't fully comprehend how much we've been forgiven. Father, we know that we ought to be further amazed by this than we are. So, Father, we just lay it before you. You see all and know all. It's worse than we know. And we just thank you that there is a grace that is greater than all of this sin. Father, I pray that you would confirm the truths of the gospel and what Christ has done for us to every heart that is here, young and old. Father, that you would stir us up. That we would delight in these truths of your word. That we would truly long to see people believe. Father, forgive us where we have lacked compassion and have been indifferent to the sinful world around us. Father, help us to to know a grief at it, but to also have courage to point to your solution to it in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we do look forward to the day when our Savior will return and complete salvation and bring about the new heavens and new earth. Father, I just pray that you would encourage us and help us and strengthen us. Help us that we might walk before you in the fear of the Lord. I pray that you would make us joyful even as we battle sins, that we would rest fully in your grace and that we would live out of your grace and strive not trying to earn your favor. How quickly we know we fall back into that mentality where we want to earn the right to have joy. We want to earn the right to stand before you. Father, purge us of that. And may all of our efforts simply be out of gratitude and thankfulness for right standing that is already ours by grace through faith in your son, Jesus.
So we look to you, we ask you for your help, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.